This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Father, take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As some of you know, I I teach at Trinity School for Ministry, uh, and I first went there 21 years ago. And when I first went there, one of my jobs was to organize Jan term and June term courses. And there was a small staff that worked with me. And almost the first day, one of the staff said to me, I guess she'd seen my curriculum vitae. She said, you're one of those mission guys, aren't you? And I said, yeah, my wife and I had been missionaries in Kenya. She said, well, you know, sometimes we do mission courses here and not very many people come. You know, we get five or six people. But if we do courses on the Holy Spirit and healing, we'll get hundreds of people. I said, yeah, it's probably true. Uh, She said, but we're still going to do mission courses, I suppose, are we? I said, yeah, we are. Two years later, she came to me. Her name is Linda Cohen. She came to me two years later and said, don't know how quite how to say this, but I think God is calling me to be a full-time missionary in Israel. And that's where she is, actually. Uh, But there's a problem, you see, because why would hundreds of people come to a course on the Holy Spirit and healing And only six or seven people come to a course on mission. The two actually are supposed to go together. The Holy Spirit is God empowering us to do his mission in the world. But I'm uh, getting ahead of myself. Turn to the front cover of your bulletin. It's a great picture on the front cover. Of all these people ascending this hill... And there's a biblical text in the middle. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. That biblical text is from the second chapter of Isaiah. It's actually repeated in the fourth chapter of Micah. You see, there there are a whole group of texts in the Old Testament that talk this way. Let me, let me read you from Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. The mountain of the house of the Lord, that's where the temple is, Mount Zion in the center of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and all, because it is just a hill. You know, it, if you've been to Jerusalem, it's not that big. It's not like Mount Kilimanjaro or something. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. 
incredible vision of a peaceful world which comes about because people come to Mount Zion and learn uh, the ways of the Lord. We don't have to rely just on Isaiah chapter 2. Here's a text that we usually read around Advent and Christmas time from Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawning. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they will all gather together. They will come to you. You sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. It, it's an incredible vision of what will happen in the end times. Uh, Isaiah gets kind of specific in some places. This is from Isaiah 19. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Now, Egypt and Assyria were the two superpowers in the 8th century BC when Isaiah was writing. And poor Israel was sandwiched in the middle of these two huge superpowers. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. It's the only place in the Old Testament where the word, my people, is used of someone other than Israel. And it's Egypt, the old oppressor of Israel, the one from whom God had to bring Israel out in the Exodus. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. Assyria, the place that came and destroyed Israel. And Israel, my inheritance. There will come a day, Isaiah says, when all this war and bloodshed will end because people will come and learn the law of God. And we don't have to, it's, this is all through the prophets, not just Isaiah, it's all through the prophets. It's also in the Psalms. We read Psalm 67 this morning, which talks uh, over and over about the nations. Let, let the peoples praise you, O God. Indeed, let all the peoples praise you. Uh, let your way be known upon earth, your saving health among all nations. The next psalm, Psalm 68, says this. Summon your power, O God. The power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Ethiopia shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kings of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. It's stunning. A stunning vision that we see numerous times scattered through the Old Testament. The thing is, texts like this are all over the place in the Old Testament. The nations will come, the nations will be blessed, the nations will learn God's law. I think we're used to thinking 
of the Old Testament as Israel's book. A book about God's work with a specific group of people, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, in a particular place, variously called Canaan, Israel, Palestine. But you see, the Old Testament gives a much bigger story than this. It begins way before Israel existed. In Genesis chapter 1, God says, let there be, and there is. See, God didn't have to do this. God existed from before time in eternity in the blessed state of the Trinity in relation to each other in love. God did not need us. He did not need to create anything. But God said, and everything came into being. God created. This is the first mission text in the Bible. It's about God who extends the privilege of existence to everything, to everyone. It's about a God who reaches out beyond himself to make the world. And it's not until Genesis chapter 12 that we find the creation of Israel as a people when God calls Abraham and Sarah to be a family. And even there, it's not just about them. It's about their vocation to be a blessing to all nations. Through you, God says to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, the pilgrimage texts, those texts that, that we read about the people flowing to Zion are simply the logical conclusion to Genesis 1, to God saying, let there be. And the logical conclusion to Genesis 12, verse 3. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But Israel's call to be a light to the nations, as it says in Isaiah 49, in our Old Testament reading this morning, Israel's call to be a light to the nations, to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth, appears to have been a failure, at least from some angles. Yes, some Gentiles did attach themselves to Israel. In the story of the Exodus, when the people of Israel leave Egypt to go into the promised land, the book of Exodus tells, tells us that it, it is with a mixed multitude that they went forth. This was not a pure race. This was anyone who wanted to join themselves to the people of God could come. Uh, the door was always open. Conversion was always possible, although a little more difficult for men than for women. Look, for example, at Jesus' family tree in the first chapter of Matthew. The first verses of Matthew give the genealogy of Jesus, and scattered through that genealogy are the names of women. Most genealogies in the ancient world only contain the names of men, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. It goes on. But in Jesus' genealogy, there are f five women, four plus Mary, who are mentioned. And those four are all Gentiles. Rahab, a Canaanite. Ruth, a Hittite. A Mo sorry, a Moabite. Uh, Tamar, a Hittite. 
the wife of Uriah. For the most part, however, the relationship between Israel and other nations was usually a tense one, a difficult one. Israel, after all, was a very small nation. They were often oppressed by the empires of the ancient world. The nations tended to be the enemies of Israel. Not only that, but the nations did not worship the God of Israel. They worshiped many other gods. And so there was always this danger that Israel might be sucked into the idolatry of the nations. Did God's plan to save the world through Israel fail? Was the call of Israel to be a light to the nations wrong? Did God's plan A, I will send Abraham to make things right, did that fail and God has to turn to plan B, to Jesus? As Paul might say, by no means. Throughout the New Testament, you see, Jesus is called the Christ. We are so used to using that word that we forget its meaning. Christ means the Messiah, and the Messiah means the King of Israel. Israel's representative. He is, in fact, what Israel was called to be. He is the one who fulfills the vocation of Israel perfectly. He is the perfect son of God, as opposed to Israel, who is the very often the disobedient son of God. Jesus is the one who brings healing. He is, as Isaiah 49 says in this morning's reading, the servant of the Lord. He is the chosen one. In fact, Paul will tell us in one of his letters that it is at the name of Jesus, the Christ, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, they will confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But this will happen, this submission, this bowing of the knee and confessing with the tongue will happen not because Jesus coerces, not because there is some kind of forced submission, but because, as Isaiah 60 says, nations will come to his light. People from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be drawn to him by the message that the creator of all has come to live among us that the sustainer of the universe loved us so much that he suffered with us and for us, that by his rising from the grave, he has defeated death. This is the message that the apostles are told they are to share in Acts chapter 1. So we turn to that passage briefly. Acts chapter 1, we'll just look quickly at three verses there. Acts 1, 6 to 8. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? This was part of the great expectation. When the nations would come, the kingdom would be restored to Israel. Uh, A number of commentators on the book of Acts think that the disciples are actually asking the wrong question. And, And Jesus' answer is not a yes or no answer. But it's not that the question is wrong. It's that the timing is wrong. Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The restoration is still coming. In the meantime, there is a job to do. You will receive power, Jesus says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In Luke, Jesus tells them to wait for the promise of the Father. Uh, In fact, we should uh, turn to Luke 24 quickly. Luke and Acts, of course, are two parts of a two-volume work. And in Luke 24, Jesus expounds a little more uh, into what it means for the apostles, the early church, to be witnesses. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is the risen Jesus talking to the assembled disciples. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that is the entire Old Testament story, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of what things? You are witnesses that the entire Old Testament story Everything written about the people of Israel, everything written about the plan of God in the Old Testament has come to its climax in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They are witnesses to that story and especially to the climax of that story and that we need to respond to that story with repentance and forgiveness of sins will be given to all those who repent. That is what the disciples are to be witnesses of. But they need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that work. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right question, wrong time. In this time, wait for the power of the Spirit so that you can be witnesses. Where? Well, some people think that the phrase in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth is kind of like uh, Luke giving us his plot line for the book of Acts because the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem and it ends in Rome. There is a text in in a book called the Psalms of Solomon. And in the Psalms of Solomon, there is reference to a Roman general who is coming from the ends of the earth. And so a number of scholars think, ah, the ends of the earth means Rome. 
Acts begins in Jerusalem, ends in Rome. The ends of the earth must be Rome. And that's the plot line that, that Luke has given us. But read that text again in the Psalms of Solomon. That Roman general is coming from Spain, where he has just had a military campaign. And Spain was as far as people could conceive in the Mediterranean world. After that, you kind of drop off. It's the ends of the earth. It's not just Rome. It's not just the center of the, of the empire, but the ends of the earth where people are to go and be witnesses of Jesus. There are actually other texts, other ancient texts that talk about the end of the earth as being other places, including, for example, Ethiopia, Cush, that land south of Egypt that's fairly mysterious and crops up from time to time in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what they should do, I suppose, is have uh, the first of, of many annual meetings and come up with a strategic plan, perhaps a five-year plan, first year Jerusalem, second year Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. But what we find when we read Acts is that they're not going anywhere. They're not making any plan at all. The disciples sit there in Jerusalem. People are coming to them. People are being saved. The church is growing. But then there's a crisis in the church. There's some complaints. Greek-speaking widows are complaining that they're being neglected in the distribution of food. And seven Greek-speaking deacons are appointed including one named Stephen. And Stephen apparently was good not only at waiting tables, but at preaching. And he preaches the wrong message to the wrong people and gets arrested and put on trial and stoned to death. Then the church moves. It's when persecution happens that the early church moves from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 8 tells us about a guy named Philip, one of the deacons. And he goes to Samaria, that place where the, the Jews hated Samaritans more than they hated Gentiles. But Philip goes there and he tells them about Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes on them. God the Father has sent the Spirit. Philip has gone in the power of the Spirit and the Spirit has come on these hated Samaritans. God's plan to move across cultures is being done in spite of there being no early church strategic plan. And then Philip is told by God, okay, great revival here, but I want you to go to the desert now. Go to Gaza. And the text says that's a desert place. There's nothing there except a guy in a chariot. And he's from somewhere south of Egypt, the text, our English text calls him an Ethiopian. The word in Greek means somebody with a burnt face, a black person. And he hears the message of Jesus and he's baptized and he goes on his way rejoicing. It's only two chapters later that Peter has a vision that he's called to go and preach to a Gentile. But God has already moved in Philip to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, or to at least to one part of the ends of the earth. America is actually farther from Jerusalem than Ethiopia is. 
They didn't make a plan, but God moved by his spirit. In fact, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Does this mean that we shouldn't make plans? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it means we need to depend on the moving of the Holy Spirit and be open to the fact that God may change our plans. God gives gifts to his church and we need to use all of those gifts. Gifts of wisdom, gifts of planning and administration, all kinds of different gifts. But we need to depend on the Holy Spirit and we need to pray for more Stephens and Philips and Pauls who will reach out to the end of the earth. Our gospel reading this morning says that. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into his harvest. This morning as you come for Holy Communion, I hope that you will come expecting to encounter God there, to encounter the Holy Spirit, and ask the Spirit how he wants you to be involved in God's mission. Because you see, I think there's a mistake on the front page of the bulletin. Nothing wrong with the picture. But it says World Missions Sunday. Our missions are all well and good. But the important thing is the one mission the mission of God, the mission of God in Jesus, the mission of God in Jesus now given to the church in the power of the Spirit. I would implore you to ask God this morning how he wants you to be involved in his mission in the world. We'll have people praying in the chapel and in the sacristy if you want someone to pray with about this. But come and as you receive communion, receive a word from the Lord. Ask him how he would have you enter into his vineyard to do his work. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.